Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and on Twitter, and also they have a YouTube channel. This event is part of our Good Lit series, underwritten, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. My name is Kelly Corgan, and it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest. Anna Quinlan is the rare writer who has managed to have both a robust career as a journalist and as a novelist. Whether she's writing fact or fiction, she's deeply sensitive to the people in her stories, what makes them tick and what troubles they carry and how they feel about the people in their lives. Anna spent decades at the New York Times, as I'm sure you know, wearing different reporting hats and eventually started writing more personally. She went on to become an op-ed columnist, the third woman ever, where she won a Pulitzer Prize, or a Pulitzer Prize, how do you say it? We don't know. Those of us who have not won one don't know how to say mm -hmm. it. <laughs> Maybe we'll ask Anna. And then went on to write a column for Newsweek. She's written eight novels and eight nonfiction books, all bestsellers, and we are delighted to have her at the Commonwealth. Please join me in welcoming my friend and my mentor and my spiritual animal, Anna Quinlan. <laughs> That was probably the best introduction I've ever had because it was so not by the book. It was so clearly written by the introducer. And the reason it was so good is because Kelly Corrigan is such a fantastic writer. If you haven't read her books, go out and get them now. Well, now it's just going to seem like I'm like flattering you back. <laughs> but what I was going to say before you <laughs> stole the show was that you are really one of my all-time favorite people to talk to in front of a crowd or at your kitchen table or at my kitchen table. And I want everyone here to know that if you have a crush on Anna Quinlan, number one, get in line. <laughs> and number two, she is exactly who, she, who you think she is. So enough of all that. Um, now let's be mean to each other. Okay. <laughs> Set up Miller's Valley for us. Um, Miller's Valley is named after the place where it's set, which is a small farming community in a very rural area of Pennsylvania. It's been relatively unchanged for hundreds of years. Um, uh, there's, there's a few family farms. Um, and it's also the target of a possible government plan to create a reservoir where the houses and farms happen to fall. But it's also the story of one 
little girl who becomes a woman during the course of the novel. Her name is Mimi Miller. She's part of the Miller family. Um, And when we first meet her in the book, she is 11 years old and selling corn from her family farm from a card table set up by the side of the road. And when we come to the end of the book, she has become a woman in her early 60s with a life that is um, something of a surprise to her because she has grown from little girl to adult woman during a time of enormous change for women in this country, the time um, that most of us know as second wave feminism. Mm-hmm. And what was the first decision you made when you sat down to write it? The, the, the first real decision that stuck, that had implications, was it that you were going to go first person, that you were going to start with a young girl? Was it the setting? Was it the theme? Well, Mimi was the beginning for me because character and, and more specifically the protagonist is always the first thing that occurs to me. But I think pretty early on, Kel, I knew that I was going to have to write this as a first person book that given the kind of insights that I wanted to provide, but also the kind of distance I wanted to provide too, it had to be written in the first person. Uh, A variety of things happened to her family um, during the course of this book. And by the end, you understand some of them, but you're not entirely clear on others. There's a kind of ambiguity to the end of the book. And that only really works with a first-person novel because the reason it's ambiguous is because it's ambiguous to Mimi. I only know as much as Mimi knows, as opposed to a a novel like my last one, Still Life with Breadcrumbs, that had this almost godlike, omniscient third person that knew everything about what had happened and what was still to come. So that first-person voice um, was a real early decision, and... It's a very critical one in terms of, of how you're feeling about the work. Because when you're writing in, in the first-person mm-hmm. voice, if you've got it right, you're really cooking with gas. Mm-hmm. If, if you mm-hmm. don't have it, then you're lost. But at the right. moment you begin that kind of literary ventriloquism, you know, the moment mm-hmm. you can say convincingly, call me Ishmael. Right. You're good. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so that makes me want to ask two questions. One is, was there anything that going first person made impossible, right? Because she has to see it or know it in order right. for it to be included. Like you can't go anywhere that she hasn't gone. Right. Which is, can, can cut off possibilities in terms of storytelling. So answer that one first, and then I'll ask you the next one. Well, it can, it, the price you pay for cutting off those possibilities is intimacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, there there were no narrowing of possibilities with still life. I mean, you could know everything right. and you did. But there's something about a third-party narrator that unless you're very, very careful to make the reader connection to your characters really profound, can be distancing. Yes. It can be as though you're at 35,000 feet yes. looking down at people. Yes. Whereas with a first-person narrator, there's a kind of an instant intimacy that exists right from the very beginning. So it is a little bit of a trade-off, but um, I, I didn't feel constrained by it. Are you a, uh, do you prefer one or the other as a reader? Like, I'm such a first-person reader. 
I don't. Like every book I love is first person. I don't really, I don't think. I mean, I've, yeah. I've loved novels of both sorts. Um, but there's a, there's a kind of a, a necessity to it with mm-hmm. certain kinds of books. And this yeah. was one where I knew when I was writing Black and Blue, that's a first person book told from Fran Flynn's perspective, that had to be first person. You had to feel what it was like to be in that skin. And very early on, I came to the realization that with Mimi, it had to be the same thing. And then you covered, you know, as you said, 11 to 60 or something. Mm -hmm. So as you're writing that voice, that voice has to grow and change and use different words as we do, as we become 20 and then 40. I mean, think of the different ways that you talk now um, and so I'm just imagining you writing and thinking, oh God, I can't go back to those early chapters because I don't want to lose track of the nuances of a maturing voice. Mm-hmm. Was that, that was super a, That was a hat trick. That yeah. was a hat trick that I realized very early on. The good thing is that Mimi is somebody who by virtue of her upbringing and her personality is very plain spoken and down to the ground. So it's not like I had to take an 11 year old girl who was going to become someone who was polysyllabic and flowery and so on and so forth. She maintains a certain kind of voice throughout the novel, but it had to be tweaked as I went along. And, and that was, I think probably that was the stylistic challenge um, that I was most aware of during the course of the book. Yeah. So, um, but there wasn't a danger with going back because I never go back while I'm writing. Really? Not, not for the first time. Isn't that just like a tiny bit annoying? <laughs> so, you know, it's just no, like no. I never eat ice cream. No, no, I never break my diet. I do. When I, I say I'm going to exercise, I exercise. <laughs> <laughs> I have two boys, two sons who both are are working on novels and they caught the disease. We always, we always laugh about the fact that they illustrate the two different ways of writing. Quinn is, um, well, I would personally say he's a perfect is the enemy of the good novelist, but Mm -hmm. he's the kind of guy who will write a chapter and then go back and rework and make sure you know, da 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 da. Christopher and I both describe ourselves as run like hell to the end novelists. Uh-huh. Both of us write through the and draft then again. and then, and, and basically like avoid anything that we've done the week or the month before. And then when we get to the end, go back and start to read over again to, to yeah. fix what in, is inevitably wrong. Yeah, I, I I have written a hundred pages of a novel, and I had to call it speed writing. Like the name of the doc on my on my laptop is speed writing, to free myself up to write really fast, just to see if it would work. Will it hold together, and what will happen? And if I'm not thinking too conscientiously about every step I'm taking, like what will just kind of emerge on the page? Uh, so I think I'm going to join your camp. Yeah, and God bless your poor Quinn. The run like I mean, that. Yeah, kid's going to be bald by thirty. I mean, I, I do I do always say to myself, well, those are the people who hand in first drafts where almost nothing needs to be I know, rewritten right? in it, but that's never going to be me. No, and you have a great longtime editor in Kate Medina, right? I do. The and only she's g- 16 for 16? Yeah, she's done all my books. I've been incredibly lucky because a lot of times you start out with an editor and then your editor leaves that publishing house and the publishing house wants to hold on to you or, the, you know your agent says to you, well, we ought to go elsewhere because they didn't do a very good job or something. 
Kate Medina won me at an auction in 1988 like I was an armoire or something. <laughs> and we've been together ever since. And just having that person who knows you down to the ground and who you get to know. Yeah. I was saying the other night with her, one of the reasons why I don't have to rewrite the way I once did I mean, I'd like to think it's That's encouraging. I'm going to grow out of because this. Because I've gotten better at this. But part of it is I've so internalized Kate's voice. Yes. So I'll be working on something and I hear this voice say, isn't that cutting down the flow of the narrative? And I'm like, shut up, Kate. Right. <laughs> Go away, Kate. But, you know, uh, the things that she's been so right about in the past, when right. I hear that voice in my head now, right. I just fix them as I'm going along. Yeah, I think that's one of the most notable things that changes book to book is that you become better editing at editing yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it's such a joy because it's so hard to be the writer and it's so much fun to just rip it to shreds as the <laughs> editor. I mean, I, I am so much more productive on the days when I'm like playing my own editor than the days when I'm actually trying to fill a page. Um, so Mimi's dad is a fix-it man. And the, the quote was, when things still got fixed instead of just junked. And then later you say, when I got older, I realized that the majority of people in Miller's Valley were the most discontented kind of Americans, working people whose situations hadn't risen or fallen over the generations, but who still carried a little bit of those streets paved with gold illusions, and so were always annoyed that the streets were paved with tar or paved at all. So I feel like there's this whole back when thing that we do as individuals and as a nation and probably as a society. Um, so people love like evoking yesterday. You know, it's so seductive to say things like make America great again. <laughs> or even just in your marriage to say like, you know, you don't bring me flowers anymore or about your kids like, oh, you used to be so sweet. Um, <laughs> and now you're so horrible. Um, so, you know, given that memories and nostalgia are such a profound part of our existence, should we be wary? Oh, always. The rose-colored glasses approach is absolute nonsense. I encounter it all the time about reading. Here's the thing, Kellen. Keep this in oh, mind yeah. while you're writing. No one reads anymore. Right. Okay. Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all right. those book clubs. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they're doing, but no one reads yeah. anymore. Yeah. Okay. Look at all these beautiful readers. It's utter nonsense yeah. because it suggests, and people will say this to me. Yeah. 50, 60 years ago, everyone read. It's not true. Right. It's not true by the data. Gallup started doing a poll in 1950 that asked the question, have you read a book or novel in the last year? Okay, in 1950, 17% of Americans said yes. 17%. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Common You're listening Club to the Progressive right Voices this. channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, 
Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Now, part of that was because we had much lower literacy rates. Mm -hmm. Part of that was because a lot of people didn't have access to books. People buy books all the time now. Mm -hmm. You know, 60 or 70 years ago, people who read books got them out of the library. That's, right. that's how they got them. Um, part of it was because people had jobs that didn't leave them any time right. for, for reading right. books. Bone tired. So, so more people read than ever before. Right. Newspapers are not as good as they once were. Right. I always say to people, go to the library, call up the microfiche for, for uh, your local newspaper in the 1940s and 50s. I, I just feel like I should pause for our radio audience and tell them what microfiche is. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe even what a newspaper is. <laughs> Are you suggesting I'm an old person, Cal? <laughs> I'm suggesting that there are a lot of young people all of a sudden. That's what I'm suggesting. Um, I mean, they just didn't used to be as good. Yeah. They were slavishly in the tank for local businesses and government. Yeah. They weren't very brightly written. And they completely ignored poor people, people of color, and women, unless right. you count the sewing patterns that were in them. Right. So the, you know, the, the rose-colored glasses. Now, a lot of what is powering the current presidential race, particularly on the GOP side of the aisle, is that good old days approach. I know. When men were men yes. and women were housewives. And every time... And I, everyone was white. And everyone was straight. Exactly. Exactly. Because everyone used to be straight. Um, either that or you went to jail. Um, yeah. Um, um, or to some know, kind of behavior modification farm. And every time I think of that, I think of my father one day just out of a clear blue sky saying to me, can you imagine if you'd been born 50 years earlier, your life would have been a misery. And he was absolutely right. I mean, given the kind of personality I have, I don't know what I would have done with myself. So uh, I think the interesting thing about Miller's Valley is there is this incredible time and place mm -hmm. that seems so lovely in a lot of ways in the 50s and 60s. And then you look at the trajectory of Mimi's life and she winds up in a much better time. Right and a much better place right. for somebody like her. And, yeah. and it's that dichotomy between, you know, all those lovely little things that populated our lives when we were young, and yet we're a cover for certain little boxes of behavior, behavior and gender roles and the like that made many of us feel as though we were never going to belong. Yeah, and also pressed certain things into secrecy. Absolutely, many things into secrecy, yeah. which is another thing that this book is about. Yeah. Um, so I want to get to the secrecy thing, but, you know, early on, I'm like page six or something, Mimi's mom says, uh, screw it, let him have it. 
So everyone's saying, oh my God, they're going to they're gonna flood our town. They're going to put this thing underwater and it's all going to be gone. And the mom has no rose-colored glasses. She's right. perfectly happy to see it all be done with. Say why. Say who she is to you. Well, you know, she's a very straightforward person and she's a figure of some stature in her community. Yes. She's one of those people who's not an elected official and she's not rich or powerful in any way, but there's a sense that you can take her to the bank. For sure. I think most small towns have a woman like that. that it's always everyone, a woman too, right? Yeah, that everybody looks Sorry, up to and that's thinks, the way it is, you know, this is, this is a really serious person. And she never actually says it, and you have to read between the lines, particularly in how she deals with her daughter to understand it. But somehow she feels like she's wound up in a little box that was not of her own making. Mm -hmm. You know, she's a nurse, and she is a kind of a... She's not a warm fuzzy with her daughter, and I think a lot of that is because she doesn't want Mimi to get real comfortable in the life that they have because she wants her to want more and mm -hmm. she wants her to get more. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of women who watched from afar as the world changed for women like us mm -hmm. who were those women, who were women, you know, who, who could have been the doctor instead of the nurse, sure. who could have been the college professor instead of the second grade teacher, yeah. who could have been the reporter instead of the stenographer, right. except that the wheel of history didn't turn fast enough for them. Yeah. And Miriam Miller is one of those people. It's interesting. There's also like potential conflicts, like emotional internal conflicts with that situation with watching your children get something that you didn't have access mm -hmm. to. I'm remembering that when I was graduating from college, I got some award and I was all whipped up about it. And my mom didn't go to college and her brother got to go to Princeton because he was a man. And she went around the corner to some community college because what's the point? Right. And so I called her to brag on myself. And she, you know, was sort of either unimpressed or busy or not interested. And then we hung up and I felt like, huh. And so I called back and I said, hey, I just like, to say like that oh, was pretty exciting for me like I it's really there's nobody else I can call to say this and she said you know I'm glad you called back I want to tell you something I'm jealous that's so fantastic that Isn't she it? said that to you it was a huge new chapter in our lives together in our relationship it was like oh <gasps> First of all, I'm so sorry because I've never thought about you as a human being. I only think about you. <laughs> I only think about you as the woman who gave birth to me and has stopped me from doing everything I want to do. <laughs> and a bank machine. <laughs> and a chauffeur. <laughs> but other than that, it was unclear to me that you were actually an individual with dreams and visions for your life. Um, but yeah, it was. It, it is like an incredible thing. It must have been an incredible thing for people like Miriam to watch their kids go and also when she didn't I, feel like she could and also for all of us to sort of turn our backs on them so there was this whole well i don't want the life my mother lived that yes, we all had yes, yes. and which and is so ugly and judgmental it and was critical. It, it was really it was really ugly and judgmental and i i was revisiting some of that when i was working on lots of candles plenty of cake yeah. which was about a nonfiction book about getting 
me getting older. And all of a sudden I flashed on the fact that when I was a little girl down in our basement, we had this draftsman's table you know, with this tilt top yeah, that you, yeah. with the wheels that you could lock into place. And I went down to see my dad at his house and I said, that draftsman's table. And he said, yeah, that was your mom's. The, her, the one year out of high school where she worked between the time she graduated from high school and got pregnant with you, she was the only woman draftsman at um, General Electric in Philadelphia. And in fact, they hung this piece of fabric on the front of her draftsman's table because she she wore a skirt to work and they they referred to it as a modesty panel and I thought and I thought never for a moment did I know that ask about that or discuss that the main thing that I remember from my mother having a certain facility with pencil and paints and stuff is that on Fridays, because we are, of course, Catholic, my mother would put a hard-boiled egg in my lunch and she would paint with watercolors on the hard-boiled egg. And I would take those eggs out of my lunch bag and I would scarcely look at them before I went like that. And you know, revisiting all those things in my mind, I had a plethora of emotions, but one was that I was thoroughly ashamed of myself. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I've definitely called my mom and she's picked up and I've just said, hi, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) To say for what? And I was like, the whole thing. (laughs) I didn't deserve you. Uh, I need to pause and say, as a reminder for the radio audience, this is the Commonwealth Club of California, and we are talking to writer Anna Quinlan about her latest novel, Miller's Valley. I am your moderator, Kelly Corrigan. So me, speaking of like memories and looking back, so Mimi says at some point, I have clear memories from that time, but they're not the ones you'd think. They're never the ones you'd think. My kids are getting older, and I'm sort of obsessed with making memories. And then I have this horrible face-to-face reckoning with the fact that I don't have any vote whatsoever in what they remember or how they remember it. So talk to me a little bit about um, the role of memory in your personal life and as a writer. Well, I think, I mean, it's what you draw on as a writer all the time, but what you learn early on is that it's never the big things that you Mm -hmm. have memories of. It's Mm -hmm. all those tiny, little, small things, Mm -hmm. all what what writers call the telling detail Mm -hmm. that that makes all the difference in the world. Did you keep journals? No. No, I was a journal keeper. That's where I like got all my best lines. You really were a journal keeper? Forever and ever. See, I think from a very early age, I realized I was only gonna do it for money. No, I really did. <laughs> I said once, I said once, I'm like a prostitute. I only do it for money. And I forgot that one of my kids was in the audience. And afterwards, she was like, could you like not say the prostitute thing? <laughs> so, so I mean, it is interesting to me that there are, that it is all the small stuff and also that it's so utterly unreliable so you know I I can't even really talk to my sister very much about what she remembers because she's 
10 years younger than I am and had a different father and didn't really have much of a mother that she remembers and so on and so forth. But when I talk to family members about a variety of things that happened when I was young, the way they remember them is completely different than the way I remember them. Um, And it's great because some of some of memory is shaped by what happens after. So the older mm-hmm. members of my family all remember me as a much better child than I actually was because of what happened afterwards. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think that tractable children become writers. Um, I think discontented children become writers because they want to give a certain kind of shape to the world and to the events of life. Okay, so this is really interesting because when I read your dedication, which says like to my mother and father, blessed forever in both Both of you or something like that, I thought, isn't that interesting? You had such a a healthy, loving childhood. You have a great marriage, 38 years today. (laughs) Happy anniversary, Jerry. Yes, Uh, Excuse me, my husband's trying a case in New Jersey, and I'm talking to all of you in San Francisco. That's how you keep the love strong. On (laughs) little distance. You told me that. You said that. On April 8th, 1978, I'm not sure this is exactly how I envisioned it. Um, First of all, when we said, till death do us part, I didn't realize it was going to be such a long time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you tell, you go away, you live in New York, and then you go away to this house in, um, outside of Philly uh, in the summer. And I remember saying, like, wow, you do? Like, that's so cool. How long are you there? And you're like, you know, three months. And I said, where's your husband? And he said, in New York. How do you think we lasted so long? I was like, <laughs> ding, note to self. But that's the way I grew up, because we had a house on Long Beach Island, and we would all go down there for the summer, and then my father would show up on Friday evenings yeah. after work and, and leave again on Monday morning. Right. Stick a drink that's, in his hand. That seemed kind Everybody's of normative happy. to me, yeah. you know? Okay, so let me go back to this, this sort of happy uh-huh. childhood, happy marriage. You, you adore your children. Mm-hmm. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that you know we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, 
And you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now. And, and it's, it's a good progression for society. It's good that people are, are not just you know, tolerating, but appreciating diversity. And that's the message, is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity. I think that whoever you are, follow your passion. Follow what you believe in. Follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Do you think that happy, contented, well-balanced people can make great art and great things? Or do you think that there is some strange advantage to having a chip on your shoulder, or some big emotional hole you need to fill? I'm thinking of people like Steve Jobs and Alexander Hamilton and... Um, God, David Sedaris, uh, you know, like people who went through something. I mean, we've been through things, but we've been through different, uh, not, not tragedy, deep tragedy or deep dysfunction. I don't think we've lived through deep dysfunction. And then there we are trying to. Well, Pat Conroy used to say that yes, the biggest gift example. he had perfect as a novelist example. was a very unhappy childhood. Yes. And I remember first reading that and thinking, well, I'm in deep trouble here because I, I actually did have a very happy childhood. At the same time that, and, and part of this goes back to the whole feminism and being female part of the equation. At the same time that I can clearly remember, even as a fairly young girl, feeling like there was no place for me in the world. I mean, looking around where I grew up, which was this beautiful suburb of Philadelphia, you know, great families, great friends. Um, I remember thinking, okay, here are my choices. I either get to be a mom of seven or eight children, or I get to be a holy child nun. Yeah. That's it. Those are my only options. Right. And guess what? I don't feel like I'm cut out for either one of those things. Right. So there was a sense of where am I going to fit in? There is yeah. no place in this world for me. And I think some of that drove me yeah. as a writer. But also, you know, when I was a sophomore at Barnard, I um, dropped out of college two weeks into my sophomore year to go home and take care of my mother because I'm the oldest of five children and my mother had stage four ovarian cancer. And I remember we were sitting in the kitchen one day. She was in the whe wheelchair teaching me how to make some food that I didn't want to learn to make because I was not the kind of woman who was ever going to cook meals for people. I was too grand and important for that. And, mm -hmm. and, and um, my mother said to me, there was a silence, and she said, well, now you'll have something to write about. And... At the time, I just was gobsmacked by that. And afterwards, I felt dreadful that she thought that her illness and death was basically material for the artist someday to be known as Anna Quinlan. But as with so much else, she was absolutely right. I mean, mm -hmm. that was 
that was the beginning of the time in my life that turned me into a human being. There were two things, three things really that turned me into a human capable of understanding humans enough, well enough to evoke them in novels. One was the illness and death of my mother. The second one was having the great good luck to be a street reporter in New York City and meet all the people that I met from all different kinds of walks of life and Mm -hmm. having the opportunity to interject myself into their lives. And the third was being Quinn, Chris, and Maria's mother. That did it for me. I mean, if any of those things had not happened, I'm not sure I could have been a, a novelist. Right. So speaking of novelists uh, versus memoir writing and nonfiction, right? So you're, you're, you're 50-50 split there. Um, and I'm three memoirs in, and, and I get the same comment that I bet you get at every reading, which is, God, you're so honest. You know, you just put it all on the page. And I want to say, like, well, just because I told you how I lost my virginity doesn't mean I'm telling you the whole story. Like, <laughs> because there's stuff that you just cannot talk about. I mean, you can't talk about unless you're deeply brave in the first person in a memoir nonfiction setting, you know, all your jealousies and insecurities. And I mean, I'm not allowed to talk about my sex life with my husband. Not that it's that juicy. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you 38 know, years. I'm going to just let it sit. I, mean, I, <laughs> I got some lines that I, but I'm going to, um, but they won't stop coming to me, but I'm going to push them away. Um, but I, I sometimes think, uh, oh, this is why fiction exists, because we can be more honest there. We can be more honest about what hangs us up. What do you think is more, what's, what do you think is more honest? It's a different, it's a different honest. And here's the great thing about fiction. You can know everything about the person. Mm-hmm. I mean, Which I know. Which is untrue in life. Which is not only that you can't know. I mean, you know, when I went out as a street reporter, I knew as much as people were willing to give me. And I was always keenly aware of the fact that that was never 100% or even close. You don't really know everything about yourself. Right. But you can know everything about Mimi Miller or Fran Flynn or Rebecca Winter, the people that you create in novels. What you do in a memoir is the same thing you do in a column in a different way, which is you craft a persona. And the persona is your personality, but only a kind of a a carefully shaped version. Mm -hmm of your personality, you sort of sand off Mm -hmm. some of the stuff. And it doesn't mean you're not honest. It just means that you save about 20%. And frankly, you save about 20% for the sake of yourself. I mean, I don't want it all out there. I, I feel that way. Like I'm perfectly comfortable sitting up here talking to all of you, you know, and, and being candid with Kelly about the things that we both care about and do and think about and all that. When I am running or, or walking in the morning in Riverside Park and I pass the same woman with the same dogs for six months and in month six she says to me, 
wow, that was a great review in the book review. I feel exposed in a way that makes me deeply uncomfortable because up until that point, I thought we were just two strangers who say hi to each other in the morning when we pass. And suddenly I realize that she has a whole wealth of what she thinks is knowledge about me that I don't have about her and that I didn't know she had about me. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the 20%. The 20% that's in workout clothes running in the park in the morning mm -hmm. with last night's mascara still under your eyes, yeah. that's the part you want to keep for yourself yeah. and not put out there. Not to mention your people. Yeah. I mean, these are real husbands and real children. And, you know, if you wanted to... If you wanted to give a, a really unsparing um, picture of family life, you would have to go. I would have to go to fiction. Well, and I you couldn't do it. In you protect them in a different way, yeah. right? Like when I was doing the life in the '30s columns, yeah. when I just had the boys and the boys were little, I gave Jerry every column that had anything about our family in it. And the deal was up or down. It wasn't, gee, if you take out that sentence or something, because I don't want my husband being my editor. It, if, if he that, didn't, that would be like a four-year marriage. Oh. <laughs> I don't know how people do that. It's I mean, a, every time... I've, I've made the mistake, I'm out. Every time yeah. I read about the Diddy and Dunn's reading uh -huh. each other's material, I'm like, ooh, better you than me, yeah. you know? But, I mean, if he read a column about our family and thought, this is too much... That column was going to be killed. And when the kids got older and could read on the rare occasions when I wrote about them, I would let them read it and say, I just had this conversation with Quinn. I guess I'm allowed to do this. So in, in two and a half weeks, my eldest son and his fantastic wife, my daughter, Lynn, my daughter-in-law, Lynn, are expecting their first child, who is my first grandchild. Do you have a grandma name? Nana. Okay. Because my name's Anna. Right, that's good. <laughs> Duh. You know, uh, you'd think you'd be a little more creative uh, since you're a writer. And I think we've come against a limitation. <laughs> <laughs> I had a conversation with him a couple of months ago, and I was like, like, what are you going to do about putting this kid out there? And by the way, I know I'm going to be asked to write about this, Mm -hmm. And here's the deal. You have to either say yay or nay. Okay. If your attitude is, Mom, this is our kid. We have custody of everything about him. I will never write a single word about this child. Right. And conversely, given the fact that I did write about you guys, and then I stopped once you could read, mm -hmm. and then only did it when you approved it, and never let anybody take pictures of you, no matter how much they wanted to, no matter how much a magazine would say, well, we won't run the piece if we can't photograph our kids. Sorry, can't run the piece. You need to think about whether you're going to put, you know, the Messiah, as <laughs> I like to call him. <laughs> Good news. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Whether you're going to put him on Facebook or Instagram or, or any, of, uh, any of that kind of stuff. I mean, they have issues that I never, I never had to deal with. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I think in terms of honesty about your family, you know, books and essays come and go, right. but your kids are forever. So you right. do not ever hang your kids out to dry. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll never forget the first time uh, one of Georgia's 
have a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, and one of her friends came barely through the front door, and she, she calls me Groovy Cat, because I am. And uh, she was like, hey, Groovy Cat, guess what I read this weekend? And I was like, what? And I thought she was going to say, like, Harry Potter. And she's like, the middle place. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> I'm going to throw off. Um, that does really make you feel exposed, though. When you're when right, your and kids... I was so dumb, I didn't think it would ever last that long. I mean, my kids were one and three when I wrote it, so to me, it was like, who cares? You tell them whatever you want. It, nobody's ever going to see it. Yeah, and and even your own kids, I I think Quinn was thirteen or something, and I overheard them in the dining room because for some reason your children don't think you're capable of hearing what they say in the dining room if you're in the kitchen, <laughs> and um. <laughs> Which we don't want to tell a lot of people that. That's like, <laughs> cut that from the radio broadcast. Christopher said that he was afraid to read my books because he was afraid he might not like them, and then what would he say? And Quinn said, don't worry, Christopher. You'll really like them. They're really good. Except you might not like that one sex scene. <laughs> and Christopher said, Mom writes sex scenes. <laughs> And I wanted to come rocketing out and say, it's not really a sex scene. <laughs> How do you think E.L. James kids feel? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> um, so I have some questions from our great audience. One is, um, did, did you have some great mentors along the way, like I have you? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Oh, I had so many great mentors. When I was a kid, my mentors were all people who, unfortunately, were dead. Um, Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, Louisa May Alcott. Mm-hmm. I mean, how powerful is it? So I'm this little girl, and I'm like, what the heck is going to happen to me? And I'm reading this book, and there's this other girl who clearly is at sixes and sevens, but... All she knows is she wants to be a writer. And her whole family acts like she is a writer. And then she becomes a writer. And I know she's become a writer because I'm holding the book in my hands. I mean, that was so magical for me. Books saved me when I was a kid because, you know, I kept encountering girls like me 
yeah. in their pages or the possibility of becoming more. You know, I'd read about Dickens' life and how his dad was in a debtor's prison and how they put him to work in a factory and then he became Charles Dickens. Mm -hmm. So I, I sort of had those mentors and then um, as I got older, uh, here, here's, here's a word from our sponsor. Teachers run the world. <laughs> they should all make millions of dollars. My eighth grade nun, Mother Mary Ephraim, my senior English teacher, Jeanette Ritzenthaler, and my major advisor in college, Catherine Stimson. Three women who did not, go to my comfort level, level, went to my discomfort level and mm -hmm. kept pushing me, you know, mm -hmm. you can do more. Mm -hmm. You should write that. You should keep doing this. Mm -hmm. That I mean, I consider them not only mentors, but guardian angels. And then yeah. there were so many great women in the newspaper business who were... Really? Oh, yeah, who were so... I always picture you alone in there with a bunch of suits. No, actually, well, there, there were a lot of suits, but also there were a lot of us who got hired at the same time because of the class action suit at the New York Times. Um, and, oh, uh -huh. and a lot of those women are still my friends. So... You know, people say to me all the time, this is probably my least favorite question. Don't you find that women are each other's worst enemies? Don't you find that women are really competitive with each other and try to undercut each other in the workplace? And I'm like, wow, that's a really easy question. No, 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 no. That was never my experience. It's yeah. always been like women lift me up. I yeah. mean, you know, like when I read the middle place in galleys, I immediately sent you an email, right? Yeah. And said, hey, you don't know me, but like your book. You don't know me. But your <laughs> She's book, all humble like that. Your book is fantastic. And then you emailed me back and then we yeah. became friends and we take care of each other and give each other's work to people and yeah. do things for each other and everything. And that's totally been my experience. Mine too, actually. When yeah. those, whenever those books come out and they're big bestsellers and the person, the author's running around to all the morning shows and talking about women and their kind of this divisive culture, I just feel like, I, I mean, I don't doubt that that was your experience, but it is not the experience. Right. It is an experience. Right. Um, so talk about, how do you think feminism's doing? Where are we in the trajectory? We are like God everywhere. <laughs> I mean, yeah. look, you know, look at the difference. Look at how many women are in the Senate now. Is it enough? Not even close. Is yep. it so much more than when I was a girl when there were the big zero? Yeah. Yes. Look at how, you know, the arguments in the Texas abortion case on the court, those three women brought who they were to play when they questioned mm -hmm. the attorneys on that. It was, it was transformational. Mm -hmm. So you look at that, you look at more women in positions of power and influence. You look at more women on the bench. You look at more women getting published, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, I just think. I also think there's, there's um, really tragic uh, statistics that, in some way actually point to something positive, which is like, for instance, that the number of rapes, reported rapes is going up. And I think a reported rape 
is there's something really positive in that, that they, that they feel safe enough to say exactly. this happened. Exactly. Because you go back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and I'm sure the percentage was much lower. Well, my friend- Because Le- you weren't legit. It was probably your fault. You were probably wearing a short skirt, you know, yeah. like- My friend Linda Fairstein, who was the Manhattan sex crimes prosecutor and now writes mystery novels, always reminds me that until the mid-70s in New York, you could not bring a rape prosecution unless you had a third-party witness. So somebody had to walk in on the event taking place for the sake of the prosecution, hopefully either a nun, a priest, or a police officer. to testify otherwise you couldn't even bring the prosecution so so we changed that which is such a big thing to say that's such a big message to send to women which is like it's not your your voice your you can't be trusted it's just not legit it's just and that's a sin that's a sin that makes so you change first we change the law so that you can undertake the prosecutions and then you change the atmosphere We've been, you know, I'm on the national board of Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And, and of course, over the years, we've talked so much about legislation and about new methods of contraception and about the level of care we, we bring and about our website and providing great information for people. And we've just started talking about how one of our new initiatives is going to be driving out shame. Driving out, getting rid of shame about the way we are. I mean, and the choices we make. uh, And I mean, per the Miller's Valley. I mean, you have two unwanted pregnancies in this book. Exactly. And there's a lot of secrecy and pain around them both. But even even more workaday stuff. We still have 14 year old girls going to the girls' room in school with the tampon stuck in their sleeve because God forbid anybody should know anything about their biological functions. We've just got to, we've got, Edward, my daughter, when my daughter got her period, my husband was away and I, so I called and I said, Hey, guess what? Like Claire got her period. And so then he was home alone with her and I was on book tour and she sent me an email and she said, dad just asked me if I needed any gear or equipment. Sort of like a crash helmet. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that means tampons? I was like, oh, you wave know. it high, baby. You walk right through that house, and I need more of these, Dad. <laughs> This is a tampon. You know, I do sort of feel for all the guys who grew up under one set of rules. Oh my God, they must be horrible. And have come to, to adulthood under yeah. a completely different this set of rules. This guy right here is leaving in protest. <laughs> He's canceling his membership to the Commonwealth Club. I did not put on a tie to listen to a couple of women talk about sanitary napkins. <laughs> We honor you, sir. (laughs) And we welcome you to 2016. (laughs) This is how it's going to be. That reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of the last six months. When Justin Trudeau, who may soon be the prime minister for many of us after November. (laughs) (laughs) If the Canadians do not build a wall to keep us (laughs) out... 
Justin Trudeau was introducing his cabinet at a press conference, and and someone said, why is half your cabinet female? And he said, because it's 2015. <laughs> and that was one of my all-time... I, I, I am putting aside the fact that he's incredibly dishy <laughs> and can do the hardest yoga poses imaginable almost effortlessly yeah. because it's 2015. This is what the world yeah. should look like. Tell me, have you read the Peggy Orenstein book, Girls and Sex? I haven't yet. Have, I you, heard, have, have you heard yeah, any yeah. interviews? Yeah. So this, have you all been reading it? So it's super interesting. And one of the things about it that's interesting is that what she's saying, this is a huge feminist issue, I think, what she's saying is the only messages that girls are getting are don't be a slut, don't get raped, and don't get a disease. Nobody's saying it can be fun. You might like it. And there's a positive experience to be had there under the right circumstances, which I think is a feminist message to say, like, you're allowed to have expectations in your sexual relationships when they're right for you rather than just being in service to a man, now you're really quitting. Who, because, because boys are repeatedly given the message, ha-cha, this is going to be the coolest thing that ever happens to you. You are going to love this. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Who's your favorite um, young feminist these days? Lena's right up there. Lena Dunham. Lena's yeah. right up there, not only because, you know, people concentrate on the show on HBO, yeah. which has been so successful. But there is a girl who at a very young age said, I have this huge success. I have this public profile and I intend to do good for other girls with it. Yeah. So, you know, when she went on book tour with Not That Kind of Girl, every single book tour event she had was tied to the Planned Parenthood affiliate in the area. Yeah. Nobody had ever done that before. It yeah. was so fantastic. She has this newsletter, online newsletter yeah. called Lenny, where she has a bunch of great stuff for girls and young women. Yeah. Um, she's been out there as a Hillary Clinton surrogate yeah. almost from day one. Yeah. I mean, lots of, lots of women grow into that kind of role. Yeah. I have power and influence and I should use it for good in the world. Right. It took her a nanosecond yes. to grow into that role, and so I, I so, uh, I, I so admire her. Yeah, she. You know, they talk about learn, earn, return, and it's this sort of uh, chunking out your life. But she's doing it like this. Yeah, she's learning and earning and returning all in the same day, Absolutely. rather than saying like, when I'm sixty, I'll start to think about returning. You know, to give back, et cetera. Um, why aren't People, women and girls all across the United States as whipped up about Hillary as we think they should be. Um, I think younger women, so let's re-spool. Okay. 2008 election. I'm all lit. I mean, as a liberal, I've always dreamed that someday a woman could be president in the United States, and I've always dreamed that someday a person of color could be present in the United States. I just didn't want them both at the same time in opposition to each I other. Know. And at a certain point in conversation with my kids, it became clear to me that they just thought this was another election. Oh, okay. So yeah. like 
Okay, so one candidate's a woman who was a senator, and the other candidate is a black man who was a senator, and like one of them will be president, and okay, that's cool. That they didn't see anything historic, aberrational, crazy, yeah. thrilling the way that I did. Yeah. And I think that has to do with a lot of the response to Hillary, that it's like... They don't get it. That it's like, you know, okay, what we want... Look, I totally understand young people and the Bernie Sanders thing. Totally. Because so I. I lived through Eugene McCarthy, uh, a good... A good, solid guy who promised those of us who were young and felt that it was necessary, a certain kind of revolution. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week.